for the love of goats. We are talking about everything goat. Whether you're a goat owner, a breeder, or just a fan of these wonderful creatures, we've got you covered. And now, here is Deborah Neiman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode. I am very excited today to welcome back to this show, Dr. Joan Burke from the USDA Research Center in Boonville, Arkansas. Welcome back, Joan. Thanks, Sebra. It's good to be back. <laughs> so last time we talked, we were talking about all the research that you've done on copper oxide wire particles in like the last 15 plus years, which has made a huge difference for my herd. And I know the herds of many other people who have dealt with dewormer resistance and barber pole worms. And one of the things that I face repeatedly when people ask me a question on social media or they send me an email or something is, you know, like they've, they've clearly got a, a problem and I will say, well, it sounds like your goat needs to be dewormed. And then they say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. The last time I used dewormer X, my goat died. And then I proceed to try to explain to them, well, your goat that dewormer did not kill your goat. Your goat died probably from worms, but it did not die from that dewormer. So I want to talk about what is the difference between research that you do and what people do in their own herds, like the kind of experiences they have. And so let's get started by just talking about like, how do we know whether or not a treatment that is given to a goat works? Um, how do we figure out those things? A great question. So sometimes we provide a treatment to our goats and we think it's worked. For example, diatomaceous earth. That, that's one I, I get questions on a lot. Diatomaceous earth is fed to goats in a feed supplement as a dewormer or whatever. Sometimes people feed it for lots of different reasons. And then they say the goat looks great. So it works on my farm. So even if we measure fecal egg count and the fecal egg count is reduced and these animals getting, I'm gonna call it DE, we don't really know that the DE treatment worked unless we have a control to compare it with. So in that regard, a treatment administered to a goat to help her feel better is similar to an experimental treatment given to obtain change in animals. So my research largely deals with parasite control, health interventions, and improved production. So I'm going to kind of stick with those examples here. So for experimental treatments and perhaps farm treatments, we need replicates because sometimes an animal gets better or has lower fecal count on her own because her, for whatever reason, her immune system's improved regardless of whether she was treated or not. So ideally we want a group of treated and a group of untreated goats. Then we can do a statistical comparison of the means before and after treatment. So this applies even to dewormers like ivermectin. It's the same concept. If we dose an animal using, in this case, twice the recommended label dose for sheep, um, as that's what the American Consortium for Small Room Parasite Control recommends, and fecal egg counts are reduced, again, we don't know if it was because the dewormer worked or she improved because her immune system helped. So maybe we're doing some other things to help that. And of course, we used to be able to rely on efficacy of dewormer, but because of dewormer resistance of worms, we no longer can, especially in goats, because goats' immune systems are not very good in that regard. So let me give another example in case that wasn't quite clear. 
Let's say you want to know if feeding flaxseed meal to goats improved their health. How would you know if there were improvements? Again, you need a control group and a flaxseed group. It's best to feed individually, which isn't always practical. It's kind of easy with dairy goats because you bring them in, you can give them the treatment while they're milking, but not always practical for meat goats. So you know all of the flaxseed animals get the same amount per unit body weight compared with the standard feed diet used before the flaxseed. And classical scientists will say that fat and calories and everything between the two diets has to be identical, except, you know, whatever you're comparing. But obviously that's not practical on farm, but we, we do the best we can. Then you need to consider what are you going to measure so you know how she improving? Body weight, you need a scales, body condition scores. That's easy enough to do. You can learn how to do body condition scores. Uh, reduced health treatments might include a reduced amount of antibiotic or dewormer. Uh, you could do coat score. Look at you know the quality of the coat, the shininess. Again, it's impossible to say that a treatment works unless you have something to compare it with. So without sound scientific evidence, we might say there's anecdotal evidence for a product to make improvements. And sometimes a scientist will use the anecdotal evidence to build justification to conduct an experiment. And I've, I've done a lot of that in my research. I'll, I'll listen to producers when I'm giving talks at conferences and I'll say, gosh, you know, I'd, I'd like to test that. So I'm going to take their anecdotal evidence and conduct a sound scientific experiment. Oh, I know. I think one of the ones that you did that you hear a lot of anecdotal evidence is like on um, herbal dewormers. And I know that you actually did a control study with Molly's herbal dewormer where you had a control group that did not get it. And then a group that did get it. And then you compared the outcome of the two groups. Yep. And we also did a DE study too. So one of the things now that I think is really, really super important that I want you to talk about is the difference between correlation and cause and effect, because, you know, like those people who contact me and say, oh, I'm not going to use dewormer X again, because the last time I used it, my goat died. They're just looking at a correlation and assuming that, you know, X caused Y. And that is not always the case. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Cause and effect. So worms cause disease. That's the effect. Dewormer kills worms. Flaxseed increases pregnancy rate. I, I actually don't know if that's true, but that's just an example. People who eat red meat get cancer. I'm sure you've read that somewhere along the way. Sometimes we think we know the cause of the effect, but unless we can control all of the variables, we may not. Could be that people who eat red meat drink more alcohol or eat more protein or eat barbecued meat with bits of charred meat and seasoning. And, and maybe there's some toxins that occur from that. Or maybe they eat more potato chips. So unless we can refine the diet or the treatment, we can't know for sure what causes the effect, especially in an observational study. And, and that really includes most human studies. Here's another example. If I give my goat a dose of ivermectin, or it might be copper oxide water particles or whatever, she'll die. And yes, I've heard this from veterinarians about copper wire. If the goat really died, we cannot know if it was the ivermectin or the copper wire that caused the death, or maybe there was 
a very large load of worms in her gut. So that's why we have to have a controlled study of ivermectin treatment in a group of uniformly wormy goats. And I know that's not always practical on farm. I mean, farmers, they're focused on production, but just so you can understand why you can't say ivermectin killed my goat. So we, we want to characterize um, what's going on before the animal is treated. And so we, we look at the outcome or measures post-treatment. Perhaps look at the proportion of animals that are dewormed that die because they were given treatment too late. We can know that by how anemic the goats were by measuring the proportion of red blood cells. So, or FAMACHA scores, too few red blood cells means that the animal's anemic and that is caused by the blood-sucking barber pole worm or homongous contortus. Let's just clarify what happens when a goat's dewormed. So this is more on the cause and effect. First, let's understand part of the life cycle of barber pole worm. So goats ingest infective larvae from pasture or grass. The larva is encased in protective sheath, which that comes off once you ingest that in the rumen. This developing worm passes to the abomasum or the true stomach of the goat. And both the larval and the adult phase of the worm suck blood. And both of these sucks blood by scratching the surface of the mucosa of the stomach. So the animal will bleed a small, so that it, just, it scratches it. So it doesn't sit there and form these suckers on the animal. It, it scratches. Uh, the animal will bleed a small amount, and then the worm or the larva can consume that. And animals can lose as much as um, two-tenths to half a mil of blood per day per worm. So that's what causes anemia. Some dewormers target only the adults, such as lovamisole and copper wire, whereas others, if they were fully efficacious, target both the adult and developing larvae. So that would be ivermectin, panicure, and safeguard, for example. So generally speaking, an effective dewormer will kill the worm, and then the worm's digested in, in the gut. So it's, it's not like we deworm, they all come off and come out in the poop. It's not like that at all. So, of course... We now know, especially in goats, due to dewormer resistance, all worms won't be killed and will survive treatment. The greater the dewormer resistance, the fewer worms will be killed, thus dispelling the misconception that ivermectin will cause worms and release all at the same time. And then the goat will bleed to death, and that simply can't happen. However, if there's too many worms, too many barber pole worms, a goat can bleed to death. As I said, two tenths to half a mil of blood per day, and you've got thousands of worms in there. She can bleed to death from worms. Sometimes there's published reports based on observational studies. So as I said, in human studies, a lot of those are observational studies. Here's an example of an observational study that I conducted. It's not published, and I'll explain why. So I, I gathered data over a two-year period on deworming lambs. So lambs were based on FAMACHA scores. If a FAMACHA score is three, the lamb got only copper wire particles. If FAMACHA score was four, then she got a two-way combination, copper wire and a dewormer. And if FAMACHA was a five, then she got a three-way combination, copper wire and two different dewormers from a different class. It's an observational study because treatments were not assigned ahead of time or randomly assigned. I used the untreated lambs as a negative control, but again, it wasn't 
assigned ahead of time. The fecal account and level of anemia were much higher in the three-way treatment than the two-way or the copper alone. And that kind of makes sense because we know that FAMACHA scores and level of anemia are correlated. So ideally, when an experiment begins, you want the means of each group to be the same. A study like this can't be published in a scientific journal because there's no randomization or proper control. However, we could use a study as preliminary data and then conduct a study with animals randomly assigned to the three treatments. So I can include this in my report, but I've got to have something to back up the treatments that are randomly assigned to the groups. So you asked about correlations. So we know from scientific studies that fecal egg count and FAMACHA scores and anemia are correlated. Fecal egg counts and FAMACHA scores are positively correlated. So as one goes up, the other goes up. And we looked at thousands of observations to statistically determine that correlation was significant. So we can't just look at 10 animals and kind of get a feel whether it's correlated or not. I mean, it, it takes a lot of observations to really find something significant. An obvious correlation, another one is body weight and body condition. So obviously, when you consider animals of similar age, reproductive stage, or feeding group, you kind of get a feeling in your mind, okay, as body weight increases, the body condition is going to increase. So they're positively correlated again. And body condition score and pregnancy rate are also positively correlated. And that's why we recommend flushing before we breed animals to increase pregnancy rate and increase ovulation rate. So as one goes up, the other goes up or vice versa. Oh, that's great. Thank you for explaining all of that. Those are all a lot of really good examples. And I'm really glad that you talked about that myth about ivermectin causing animals to bleed to death, because that is unfortunately something that I see get repeated quite a lot, that if a goat has a really, really bad case of barber pole worm and you give them oral ivermectin, that all of the worms will release at one time and the goat will bleed to death. When Yamik, you just explained how that is impossible because they're not Barber pole worms are not like leeches that sit there and just suck blood all day. Yep. They'll scratch the surface several times, but they yeah. don't sit there and just latch on. <laughs> so another thing that I think is like really important for people to understand is the possibility of conflicting variables because, you know, like I get emails and messages from people who have he said things like, oh, my mentor in Arizona says there is no such thing as dewormer resistance. And I'm like, well, you know, in Arizona, people don't have trouble with barber pole worms. So I have no doubt that, that your mentor does not have a problem with worms. And if she's doing all these things like deworming regularly, that's not controlling her worms. Like she's just wasting her money because barber pole worms thrive in wet, grassy environments, not in the middle of a desert. So can you talk a little bit about either conflicting variables or like other factors that are important to consider when um, you're trying to figure out a valid experimental approach? Yeah. And considering conflicting variables, as I mentioned earlier, the immune system of goats isn't as good as other livestock species because goats were raised in the desert. So they didn't have to adapt to worms. And when they were exposed to worms, you know, in their natural environment, they choose to eat 
browse. So up away from where the worms are. But when we force them to eat grass, it's a whole different story. And you mentioned um, not having worms in you know a lot of the Western states. There are worms on irrigated pastures. But otherwise, when we talk about worm control, we have to think of the environment that we're in. And I suppose, you know, there's other variables in an experimental study that we have to consider. So we have to be practical when we listen to recommendations. Does this apply to me? Am I in the middle of a desert? Do I have to worry about worms? No. Or even if you're in a Mediterranean climate, let's say if you're in Oregon or Washington, you're not going to have the same parasites and the same parasite issues as people in the Southeast or again, on irrigated pastures. And to answer the rest of the question, you know, what are other important factors to consider in experiments? As I mentioned earlier, we want the experimental groups to be as uniform as possible. So we don't want to compare a group of goat kids versus nannies. So, you know, well, I was feeding my animals the other day and I noticed that the goat kids, they just really didn't look good, but but the nannies in a different group on the pasture, they look great. So that pasture must be much better. You, you have to consider, well, the goat kids, they're growing, they're more susceptible to parasites. It might not have anything to do with pasture at all. You know, their, their body weight and their production phase are going to be different. Their immune system is going to be different. So uh, similarly, we, we don't want to compare a, a group of buck kids to doe kids because the buck kids are going to be fighting more active. And we have to be careful when, even when we have them in the same group, comparing buck kids to doe kids, because the bucks are, as anyone who has goats know, um, they're going to harass the females, whether they're adult or young does. So yeah, we, we have to be careful of considering all the different variables um, in the animals that we want to compare. And, you know, I mentioned about breeds. Let's say we're conducting a, a study and we've got boer goats and Spanish goats. And, and it's okay to have them on the same treatment as long as your treatment versus control has similar numbers. But be careful about favoring one. Let's say I, I like spotted goats, so I'm going to treat the spotted goats more special. If you think about it, you know in your mind you don't want to do that because just treating them special is going to make her feel good and, and maybe she'll get the extra handout that you have in your hand for that. But, <laughs> and the last thing I talked about randomization, you know, why do we randomize animals to treatment? And again, using that example in my observational study with the copper wire and the two-way or three-way deworming treatment, they were not randomized. And so the outcome is going to be different. Um, even before the treatment's administered, you know, we, we can affect the outcome of the experiment. That was great. This is a lot of really good information. One of the things that I know, and this is like a really embarrassing story to tell, because I, I started reading your research and all of the other research of the consortium back well over 10 years ago when we had dewormer resistance in our herd and the dewormers were not working anymore. And I decided to do my own little study and came up with some horrible conclusions because I did not randomize my groups. And I have a master's degree and I took courses in research design. And I knew when I did this, like 
my professors in grad school never would have approved this study because there was no randomization of groups. And I don't even remember what my groups were anymore. But I I do remember the first one was all the goats that kitted in January were going to get DE and all the goats that kitted in February were going to get, I think maybe it was an herbal one. And then in March, something else in in April, they were going to get Cydectin. And then in May, they were going to get nothing. That was going to be my control group. And I'm in Illinois, you know, and I even said this because I wrote this in my blog, my old blog. And um, I said that I know people might say that there's some effect on which month a doe kids, but I've never noticed it before. And I'm sure I would have noticed it if there was. So I'm not really worried about having a conflicting variable, but the reality is that's exactly what happened because like all the January goats did great. And so I'm like, wow, that means the DE works. And then the February goats, you know, almost as good, but not quite. And I'm like, oh, the herbal dewormer works too, but not quite as good. And then, you know, like by April, it's like all the goats, like it was terrible. They were, they were all having serious problems. And I'm like, well, that just shows me that the Cydectin definitely does not work anymore. We've, we've got resistance to that. And May, the poor goats were also in really bad shape. Well, looking back on that now, I realize because this is actually what got us out of our dewormer resistance problem was it was the month they kitted in January and February our ground is frozen. We've got snow everywhere. There's, there's no worms on pasture at all. And that was really it. Like it was like, it wasn't the DE. Cause then I tried, you know, like giving DE to other goats and like, Oh, it doesn't work. And the herbal doesn't work. And I, I finally realized like, Oh no, it was January and February. That's the answer. And so that's what we did for several years to break that cycle with the barber pole worm so that our goats, well, I always say mother nature called my herd, the ones that were not very resistant to worms just died. But then ultimately what got us out of that mess was multiple years of kidding in January and February when the worms were extremely low on pasture. Yeah. It's really hard to include time in your research or observations, as you just described. I mean, there's so much that changes. If you're grazing, you've got forages that they change so dynamically. And even if you're, let's say you're looking at the first half of kidding versus the second half, well, the second group of kids are going to weigh a lot less because they're younger and it takes them a little while to catch up. I've got an experiment that's been going on for a number of years looking at fall lambing versus winter lambing. So, so I'm not just comparing the the two different times, but you know, now we've got different forages between the groups and a whole slew of variables, not to mention that, that sheep, they typically don't breed out of season. So that's a consideration as well. The parasite, and this is actually the reason for the study is that the parasite load is much less than fall lambing. So I have to describe all the different variables between the two groups. So not just that we've got the the two time frames, but all those other things. And, and still, I'm not going to be able to make these two groups as similar as I want. And so sometimes you just have to describe things the best you can and go from there. Yeah. 
So I know a lot of people get really frustrated um, about all of the different information that they find online. And I always tell them, well, that's because there's a lot of research that's been done in the last 20 years. Since goats are a minor breed in the United States, we didn't really have a lot of solid research prior to the 2000s that we could base practices on. And a lot of stuff has changed in the last 15 years because of all the research that's done. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that we now know and some of the things that are now considered best practices because research has showed us that the way we used to do it 20, 30 years ago doesn't really work? Yeah. Let me try to answer that. So we've discovered dewormer resistance 20 years ago. Well, I think we started seeing that in the 1960s and probably didn't pay enough attention to it back then. But now we know how widespread dewormer resistance is, and especially in goats, and especially if you don't consider refugia. So we've learned a lot about refugia. Why is refugia important? And refugia is just, you know, keeping a population that hasn't been exposed to dewormer or whatever treatment you have. We've also, um, and and this isn't necessarily new, because again, if you look way back in the literature, you'll see some examples of this, but we've made a lot of progress on genetics. So again, I'm going to stick with talking about worms. Worm resistance in the animal is a a genetic trait and it's a heritable trait. Um, And it has to do with, you know, a better immune system. So we select goats or sheep or even cattle for improved health traits like worm resistance. We can make a lot of progress so that we don't have to have as many health interventions. Sometimes it might take 10 years, sometimes 20 years, but, you know, starting somewhere and having a a good program to do that. And, And we do have the national sheep improvement program, which allows both goats and sheep to submit data to help you make those decisions. Some other things that were learned, coccidiostats. We learned how to use, you know, the use of coccidiostats like DCOTs and Bovitut can prevent coccidiosis, which is a protozoan parasite that causes diarrhea, um, poor weight gains, and sometimes death. And with any of the health problems, it's much easier to prevent a disease than to treat it. Vaccines. Look at the research that went into preventative vaccines. And whenever we look at any of these scientific treatments or research, you know, we don't just look at, did we fix it? We also want to look at economic advantage of doing something. We always consider economics and animal welfare when conducting research. And sometimes there's accidental discoveries while doing research, such as using copper oxide wire particles to eliminate barber pole. And I think I alluded to that in the last podcast that, you know, while scientists were studying alleviating copper deficiency by using copper oxide, they, they found that the worm load was lower. So this has been really good. And I, I hopefully it has helped people understand more about why you shouldn't just base your management decisions on something that happened with a single goat, because there are so many things that could have caused whatever it was that happened, you know, that there's other things that could have caused it. It may not be as simple as 
you know, oh, I gave a dewormer and the goat died. So the, and this is why it happened. And I, and that's another thing too. I always tell people, if you, you see people on Facebook going, why did my goat die? And it's like, well, if you really want to know, go get a necropsy because people are just guessing. And, and I will tell people that, like, I would just be guessing if I told you to tell you how your goat died. Like, if you really want to know, you have to get a necropsy. So there's also some good videos. If a producer can stomach it to do your own necropsies, um, cause you can't always get a dead animal to a vet, but I actually have my crew who've never done necropsies. I, I have them do a necropsy if they've got time and they're willing and you'll be amazed at the things that are just so obviously wrong lungs, liver. If you compare YouTube videos, then you've got to, well, oh gosh, I know that the, the lungs were involved. And then you can call your vet and say, here's what I found or take some pictures. Um, mm-hmm. That's been really useful for us. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been very interesting and hopefully also very helpful to people. Yeah. Well, thanks. I appreciate you asking me to do it. It was a lot of fun. And that's it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any episodes. To see show notes, you can always visit ForTheLoveOfGoats.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Love Goats Podcast. See you again next time. Bye for now.